Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean... I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing the P.D. James book, The Children of Men, and the 2006 film by almost the same name. But first, we're going to let you know all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. First off, we have a web page where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via Facebook page or Twitter, both searchable by typing in Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank all our patrons for their continued support and remind you all that our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast, and you are welcome to support us and this podcast for as little as $1 a month. That tiny bit of support really helps us out. And for your $1 a month, you'll have early access to all the podcasts the second that they're ready, which might be a week in advance or it might be 20 minutes. No promises. <laughs> we also have some perks at the $5 a month level, including access to some very exciting supplemental episodes that are coming up. So head on over to our Patreon page and sign up again, patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And now on with the show. Children of Men. The book actually is The Children of Men, and then the movie was Children of Men. I'm going to be doing our recap, but real quick, who picked this one? Did I pick this one? Did you pick this one? It was on the list. I remember putting it on the list, and then it was Speculative Fiction Week or something like that, and so we decided this is a nice speculative fiction to do. As of the time of this podcast going live on the Friday that it will go live, I will be traveling to FogCon, which is Friends of Genre, a speculative fiction writers conference for readers and writers of speculative fiction, and so I thought it would be a fun thing 
thing to have come out on the first day of FogCon. So any of you who are listening from FogCon or who got browbeaten or bribed into listening because you interacted with me at FogCon, welcome to our podcast. Hooray for that. So yes, Children of Men. I remember seeing the movie and being very struck by the movie when I saw it in 2006. Some of you may or may not know that I was a film studies major for a little while. And so the camera work, the cinematography, the storytelling of this really struck a nerve with me. And I thought, well, this is why I'm not a film major, because I will never make something as amazing as this. And I know that I'm totally heralding my opinion towards the end, but whatever, fine. I freaking loved the movie when I saw it. And I also said, I will never need to watch that again, but it was amazing. And then I haven't watched it again until I watched it for this. I had never read the book. I didn't even realize it was based on a book, I don't think, until you put it on the list. So then I read the book for this podcast. What about you? I had a friend who introduced me to the movie. I remember coming out of the theaters and just not having time or being busy. And he said, you really need to see this. This is like something you will enjoy. For the most, most of the same reason, the cinematography is one of those... <laughs> it's an outstanding example of cinematography. <laughs> I found out it was based on a book. And so about three years ago, I read the book. And we'll get into that. Okay, I feel like we're going to have different of opinions based on your body language right now. Here we go. Okay, so book. The 1992 The Children of Men. The narrative voice of the novel alternates between the third person and the first person. So we get several chapters that are written in the form of a diary, which is being kept by our main character, Dr. Theo Farron, who is an Oxford history professor. The novel opens with his first entry in Theo's diary. It's the year 2021, but the novel's events have their origin in 1995, which is referred to as Year Omega. In 1994, the sperm count of human males plummeted to zero, which has led to massive civil unrest and a changed world. At this point, mankind is facing imminent extinction. The last generation of people to be born are now called Omegas, a race apart, and they grew up knowing that they were super special. Theo writes that the last human being to be born on Earth has now been killed in a pub brawl. The world is reeling, and we get a large amount of exposition in these first few diary entries, such as, in 2008, Theo's rich and charismatic cousin, Zan, appointed himself Warden of England in the last general election. As people have lost all interest in politics, Zan then pretty much abolished democracy. He is called a despot and tyrant by his opponents, but officially, the new society is referred to as egalitarian. Zan run things with the help of a council, and Theo was at one time an advisor on this council, but he quit because they really weren't listening to him. We get some background into Theo and Zan. They were cousins, they spent time together every summer, but they weren't really close. Zan sort of overshadows everything and is shown to be a pragmatic person bent on getting his way. Whether or not he is a good or a bad man is pretty much open to interpretation. Theo doesn't seem to spend too much time worrying about it. More exposition about the world. There are a lot of details about this world with no children, no schools, no playgrounds, no one needing any of the services for lots of different industries. The population is dwindling, and while now people seem to have accepted it, there is mention of how society dealt with the trauma, the pregnancies that weren't actual pregnancies, the dolls that people had and babied, the relationships people have with their pets. It's very sad, even if our narrator is very detached. We also learn that Theo was married to Helena, and they had a baby named Natalie. When she was 15 months old, Theo accidentally killed her by backing over her with a car, and his wife never forgave him, and then they are divorced. At church one night, Theo, who's not a believer but likes to listen to the music, was approached by a woman named Julian. She attended a class that he covered for a colleague at the university, and she asks him to come to a meeting with some dissidents. It's important to note that she tells Theo that she's married to a member of the group. Also important to note, she has a physical deformity of her arm, and Theo is, despite himself 
drawn to her. Her group wants to talk to Theo and then have Theo talk to Zan on their behalf. Against his better judgment, Theo agrees to meet with them. But first, a quick interlude to introduce Jasper. This is Theo's mentor. Jasper is rich, settled, married to Hilda, who has Alzheimer's. Jasper wants to move in with Theo, an idea Theo abhors because he is very much a loner. We also get our first mention of sojourners, who we learn are people from other countries who flee their war-torn, our civilization has fallen countries, and seek refuge and work in the relatively safety and peacefulness of England, but they're not treated terribly well. Theo meets with Julian's group at an isolated church. Rolf, their leader, and Julian's husband is hostile, but the others, Miriam, a former midwife, Gascoigne, a man from a military family, Luke, a former priest, and Julian herself are more personable. The group wants Theo to approach San on their behalf and ask for various reforms, including a return to a more democratic system, better treatment for the sojourners, a cessation of the invasive testing the government does on people seeking fertility, also no more government for suicides of the elderly, and to change the conditions of the island of man. Theo agrees to go see one of the mass suicides because he believes that they are all voluntary and then decide if he will speak to his cousin on their behalf. During this discussion and subsequent chapters, we get even more exposition of how the UK is in the year 2021. So here's some just some bullet points. The Omegas are described as spoiled, over entitled, egotistical because of their youth and luxurious lifestyles. They're violent, remote, unstable. They regard non-Omega elders with undisguised contempt and they are spared punishment due to their age. Due to the global infertility of mankind, newborn animals such as kittens and puppies are doted upon and treated as infants, pushed in prams, dressed in children's clothing. The latest trend is to have christening ceremonies for these newborn pets. The country is governed by the Council of England, like I said. The aims of the council are interesting. Protection and security, comfort, pleasure. Corresponding to the warden's promises is a freedom from fear, freedom from want, and freedom from boredom. And there's also the state secret police, or the SSP, and they carry out the council's decrees. The courts technically exist, but juries have been abolished. Under the new arrangement, defendants are tried by a judge and two magistrates. All convicted criminals are dumped in a penal colony, which is the island of man. There's no remission. Escape is almost impossible. Visitors are forbidden. Prisoners may not write or receive letters. They're given bare necessities and left alone. Miriam's brother escaped and came to her before he was recaptured and killed. He told her that the conditions were horrible there. The strong prey on the weak. There's no law, no justice. Totally unfair that any infraction will get you sent there and you will be there forever. Foreign workers are lured of the country and then exploited. These are the sojourners. The elderly and infirm citizens have become a burden. Nursing homes are for the privileged few. The rest are expected and sometimes forced to commit suicide by taking part in a coitus, quietus, which sounds too much like coitus for my for my opinion, but whatever, coitus, council-sanctioned mass drowning at the age of 60. Wow, that's a lot of exposition. Okay, so Theo goes to Aquitus. The old folks are chained to a boat that's set adrift and then sunk so that they will all drown as a group. Theo sees first off that the people are drugged. He also sees that Hilda, who's Jasper's wife, is also on this group, and she attempts to not be part of the mass drowning. Instead, she is clubbed to death right there on the beach by an SSP soldier, and Theo himself is knocked unconscious. So he decides to meet with Zan. His meeting, however, which turns out to be a meeting with the full Council of England, does not go as planned. Some of the members resent him because he resigned as advisor rather than share the responsibility of governing. Zan guesses that Theo's suggestions come from others, not Theo himself, and he makes it clear to Theo that he will take action against any dissidents. Zan is wearing a special ring that indicates that he is married to England. Theo meets with Julian in a museum and tells her that the meeting didn't go well. He cautions her against doing anything. Then he almost begs her. He points out that they are all ill-equipped to make any changes, and that Rolf is clearly only in it for the power. Julia is in it for God, it seems. She thanks him for trying, and then leaves. 
The group gets active. First, they distribute a leaflet detailing their demands and giving themselves the name The Five Fishes. The secret police visit Theo. They ask about the leaflet and he's dismissive. They don't search his house, but they could have if they wanted. Theo sees Julian at the market shortly afterwards and he tells her that the SSP visit, then tells her that if she ever needs him, she only has to send word and he will come. That night, however, he decides to leave England for the summer and visit the continent before nature overruns it. This is the end of part one. Part two is six months later. Soon after his return, Miriam shows up and tells him that Gascoigne was arrested and he's trying to rig the Quietus landing stage to explode. They'd blown up other ramps and stages as a way of stopping the Quietuses. The other fishies are about to go on the run and Julian wants him. Miriam reveals bum bum bum, Julian is pregnant. Theo believes Julian is deceiving herself, but when they meet, Julian invites Theo to listen to her baby's heartbeat and she is indeed pregnant. It's time for them to run. The group is headed to the coast. They need supplies. They go to Jasper's. Jasper has committed suicide. The group restocks. Rolf and Theo argue about leadership. Theo knows Rolf is in it for the power. He thinks his sperm is his cachet into becoming the new warden, and he spouts off all the things he thinks are important. And Theo rightfully calls him on his bull and points out that his campaign speech, as it were, is mighty similar to what the warden himself has been saying and promising. Eventually, he lets Rolf drive a relinquishing of power, and Rolf immediately drives badly and busts a tire. A forced break in the run. They must all rest and wait for night, and it's almost a nice day. Luke and Julie and pray together. The others get along. Theo writes in his journal, they needed this bit of respite. Fire is fixed, and off they go. And then they're attacked by a wild gang of Omegas who are determined to kill at least one of them. It's terrifying. There's a ritual dance. Luke is killed while trying to protect Julian, and the rest escape. They bury Luke, and Julian confesses that Luke was the father of her child, not Rolf. And um, let's see here. Special note, Luke had a mild form of epilepsy, so his sperm wasn't being tested. He was also in love with Julian. Rolf is very angered by the discovery. He abandons the group, they figure he is off to betray them to the warden. Their only hope is that Rolf doesn't know how close Julian is to giving birth, and they can change where they're going. Theo is pretty much fully in love with Julian himself by this point. They need a car and supplies, so Theo leaves the women hidden and goes to a small town. He has one gun and one bullet. He really doesn't want to hurt anyone, and he finds an old couple at home. He ties them up, steals their car and some provisions, but he feels horribly while he's doing it. And if it wasn't so sad and scary, this exchange would be almost farce-like. First he ties them up, then he gets the water, then he helps each of them in turn go to the bathroom. Eventually he leaves them, knowing they will be found by a caretaker the next day. The group heads to the summer place where Theo and Zan spent time as teenagers. They hear on the radio that the old woman that Theo tied up has died. is racked with guilt. They know they are going to be found soon, and of course, the baby is coming. They dump the car in a pond, Theo chucks in his diary, and then they hide in a woodshed on the property. Miriam delivers Julian baby, a boy, not a girl as Julian had thought. Miriam goes to find some supplies, but she's gone too long. Theo investigates, he finds her dead, strangled in a nearby house. He returns to Julian, but soon afterwards, Julian hears a noise. Zan has arrived. Theo and Zan confront each other. At first, Zan tries to reason with Theo. His plan is to use the sperm of the baby if it's a boy and breed with Omegas, maybe even use the mother as well. Zan says he'll probably marry her. Zan offers him his old job back and all the power that he can have. Theo says no. Eventually, they realize the only one way to end this, and they both fire one shot. The sudden wailing of the baby startles Zan, causing him to miss. Theo shoots and kills Zan. He removes from Zan's finger the coronation ring which Zan had taken to wearing as a symbol of authority and seems poised to become the new leader of the UK, at least temporarily. The other members of the council come out of hiding. Theo tells him that the warden is dead, and they can meet the baby with the permission of the mother. He goes inside to reassure Julian, promises her they will always be together. The end. Okay. My note right after that is, woo! So then we have the movie recap. So Children of Men, 2006, British-American dystopian thriller film directed and co-written by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, screenplay was credited to five writers, 
with the actor of Clive Owen making uncredited contributions. We will talk about that in a minute. But first off, the movie does a really great job of setting tone. It has a tapestry of small details that add up to the exposition. We get told that the world is circling the drain right off. Our story starts with a man who gets his coffee against the news that the youngest person alive, an 18-year-old named Diego, has been killed. The world is full-on grieving mode. Moments after Theo leaves the coffee shop, it explodes in a bomb attack. I'm not sure of a more impactful opening scene, honestly. Theo is shaken by both the bomb and the death of baby Diego and leaves work early. He goes to visit his friend Jasper. As he travels, we get visual exposition. So we're very quickly made aware that it's 2027. After 18 years of global human infertility and depression, the world is on the brink of collapse as humanity faces extinction. The United Kingdom is one of the few stable nations with a functioning government. It soldiers on. It is deluged by asylum seekers fleeing the radiation and antibiotic resistant plagues which have rendered the rest of the world uninhabitable. In response, the UK has become a police state as the British army rounds up and either executes immigrants or puts them into camps. They are called Fujis, not to be confused with the band. Our main character is Theo, a former activist turned cynical bureaucrat. Through conversation with Jasper, who's a pot farmer and an old hippie cartoonist living hidden away in the country, we learn that there are also multiple dissident groups out there, including the Fishies, but that the bomb could just as easily have been the work of the government to keep the people scared and docile in order to justify their policies of oppression. There are also several religious cults that have sprung up, also rumors of a group called the Human Project that is getting close to finding a cure. Theo is depressed and hopeless. Theo and Jasper talk about suicide kits called Quitus, and Jasper tells Theo about his best pot customer, an immigration cop. Back in the city, Theo is kidnapped by the Fishies, a militant immigrants' right group. They are led by Theo's estranged wife, Julian Taylor, from whom he is separated. Julian offers Theo money to acquire transit papers for a Fuji girl because of his cousin's connections. Theo says he can't, but he doesn't need the money, but that's totally a lie, and he unceremoniously is returned to the city. He's given a way to contact the group if he changes his mind. Theo goes to his cousin and asks for the papers. His cousin is living in a state of denial and is well protected from the unwashed masses in his arc of art. Theo makes contact with Luke, one of the fishies, and meets up with him in a dog race. Since the transit papers require that the bearer be accompanied, Theo agrees to escort the Fuji girl in exchange for a larger sum of money. He meets up with Julian on a bus, and they almost reconnect, but can't. They argue, but is there room for future reconciliation? There is a tone of optimism in their banter. Luke drives Theo, the Fuji girl, Key, and another fishy named Miriam towards Canterbury. First, Theo sleeps, then he and Julian get all flirty and silly. We get a bit of background that Theo is really smart and really crafty. Suddenly, they're ambushed by an armed gang, and Julian is shot by a guy on a motorcycle. Theo's quick thinking gets the gunman thrown from his bike, and they escape. When the group is stopped by the police, Luke kills the officer in cold blood, and then the group hides Julian's body in the forest. Theo breaks down, and then the group heads off to a fishy's safe house. Key reveals to Theo that she is pregnant, and that Julian had told her to trust only Theo. Julian had intended to hand Key to the Human Project, a supposed scientific group dedicated to curing infertility. However, Luke persuades Key to stay put, and he is voted in as the new leader of the Fishies. Later that night, Theo gets out of bed and barefoot eavesdrops on a discussion and learns that Julian's death was orchestrated by the Fishies. The guy in the motorcycle is a fish in dreadlocks named Patrick, so Luke could become the leader. They intend to kill Theo and use the baby as a political tool to support the coming revolution. Theo wakes Key and Miriam, and they steal a car. Theo is very smart about this car thievery, but they almost get caught anyway. Patrick almost gets them again, but again, Theo knocks him over. They make it to Jasper's secluded hideaway and include him in the secret of the pregnancy. We learn that Theo and Julian had a baby named Dylan who died in the flu. There is a discussion of faith and chance. Also, Theo and Key bond a bit. They are becoming friends. Theo has no shoes, remember? So now he's wearing flip-flops. They need to get Key to a buoy off the coast at a specific time so that she can board the human project ship called the Tomorrow, which will arrive offshore from a refugee camp at Brexel. The question is how to get there. Jasper has an idea. They can use his pot customer, Sid, the immigration cop, to smuggle them into the immigration 
camp and then get to the buoy out in the water from there. The alarm sounds. They have been found. Theo, Miriam, and Key get away, but Patrick, Luke, and the others show up and brutally kill Jasper. The group meets Sid at an abandoned school, and he helps them board a bus to Brexel. When Key experiences contractions while at a checkpoint, Miriam distracts the suspicious guard by pretending mania and is taken away. So now it's just Theo and Key. They end up getting to the camp. They meet a Romanian woman, Mirka, who provides a room where Key gives birth to a baby girl. The next day, Sid informs Theo and Key that war has broken out between the British army and the refugees led by the fishies. Having learned that they have a bounty on their heads, Sid attempts to capture them, but Theo kills him and they escape. Amidst the fighting, the fishies, Luke and Patrick, capture Key and the baby. Patrick is ready to cure America and Theo, but in the confusion and bloodshed, Theo escapes and then tracks Luke and Key to an apartment building under heavy fire. He confronts Luke, who is then killed in an explosion, and then he escorts Key and the baby out. Awed by the baby, the combatants temporarily stop fighting and allow the trio to leave. America leads them to a hidden boat, but chooses to stay behind as they depart. From their little rowboat in the foggy water near the buoy, but not sure if they've missed the boat, they watch as military aircraft bomb Brexel from a distance. Theo reveals that he has been shot by Luke and he is dying. Key tells Theo she will name her baby Dylan after Theo and Julia's lost son. Theo loses consciousness as the tomorrow approaches through the fog. The end. Yeah. Well done and thorough. It is hard to be snarky when it's a sad topic. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, so let's see. We have changes in characters. Do you want to start there? Yes. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. So I thought, now I, I was not a huge fan of the book, but I still appreciate it. And one of the things, it was a very, very brave choice of the author to make Theo so unlikable. He has a baby girl that he kills accidentally and he doesn't feel sorry for her. He's just like, I wish you were prettier. I wish my daughter were a prettier girl. And he's disturbed by his own sort of coldness, but just that level of unlikability is a very brave choice. In the movie, he's a lot more caring. He was an idealist. It, it doesn't have that cold dispassion that's... Well, and he didn't kill his kid in the movie. That that's true, too. The kid was kid killed by chance. Theo was unlikable in the book. He was supposed to be sympathetic. Not that he earned our sympathy, but we could be like, oh my god, what a sad, tragic... I guess tragic is a better word. He was a tragic character. He was detached and depressed and a loner by his own making and didn't connect to his child, like you said. But I think it was a... Um, it was a warning. It was like, don't be like him because this is sad. And this man is is not a good person. It's kind of like saying that we need those human interactions. We need to have that connection, have more connections with people. I think people. that's an interesting dichotomy that he is both unlikable and sympathetic. Yeah. Well, I, I guess maybe tragic might be the better thing. Like, yeah. he, it's I can see the tragedy of Theo, but that's what I mean. It was a very, very brave thing to do because that can turn off an audience so quickly. And right. so to have that confidence that your audience, even with an unlikable character, will continue to be interested in the story. Right. Well, and I think it's because, you know, he, the lesson here is don't be like him. And then he doesn't stay that way. Theo's change over the course of the book, he goes from being detached to being connected. Yes. He goes from not wanting to be involved to being super duper duper involved. So I yeah, think you that that, character arc that saves it a little bit. If he didn't grow and change, then that would have been really bad. But the first five chapters are his diary. And <sighs> it's a lot of, well, I stole from my mom. And here's the thing that she did. And there's a lot of just banana 
banal detail. Yeah, it, a lot of exposition about setting up the world. Yeah. A lot of exposition. In a way, it kind of reminds me of George Orwell, where he starts off very mm. slow in 1984. Yeah. I'm thinking like um, shooting an elephant. And it starts off exposition, exposition is kind of dull. And before you realize it, you're massively invested in the story. So it reminded me of that a lot. We have our historian versus the everyman, everyman. in the book. Theo's the historian. He's backwards looking. And they even say like he even ran over his daughter by going backwards. Like he yeah. was backing up. I mean, it was <laughs> not subtle. This guy lives in the past. And how do you live in the past when there's no future? I think, you know, you have to have light so that you can have dark. You have to have dark so you can have light. You have to have a future. There's no point in caring about the history, I, I really feel like. So that was really an interesting choice. And then they changed it in the movie. And instead of that, he was a former activist, now bureaucrat, very cynical. And I think that kind of speaks to the idea where you're very optimistic and then you just get beaten down, yeah. which the is... The biggest cynic was once the greatest idealist. Right. And that is definitely something that's universal. And that's it's almost a trope in and of itself, you know, but true activism, even if they get beaten down, they still have that tiny spark of hopes. They can be called back in. And if you give them something to believe into, then they become these loyal fighters once again. Maybe I've watched too much Star Wars. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, in the book, he's a lover. Yeah. He loves the, the woman who's had to have the baby because her name changes. So we'll get to that. Yeah. But the pregnant lady, Book Theo loves her. He wants to be with her in a physical, loving way. In the movie, Theo's relationship with the woman who's pregnant is much more of a father to a teenage girl. It's much more that relationship. So th I thought that was an interesting change. It made it because it was a familial relationship, a father to a daughter to a you know, child mm -hmm. thing. And because he hadn't killed his own child, it made Theo in the movie way more, Pure. I would say, well, I would say actually more sympathetic. He okay. was tragic in the book. He's sympathetic in the movie. Does that make to sense? Me, I root for them, but for different reasons. In the book, I'm rooting for Theo because I don't want this tragic character to stay tragic. And I don't want this tragic character to get good stuff. I want him to grow and change. In the movie, I'm rooting for him because I like him and I feel for him. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like, but that's one of the differences. In the movie, you're always on Theo's side. Like almost from the very beginning, you're on Theo's side. And so why I say it's more pure is that he doesn't want anything from her. Book Theo wants Julian, you know, as a lover. Movie Theo just wants to help her because he genuinely appreciates what's going on. He cares for her as a person, not because he wants to get something out of it. Right. And his motivation is very different, is, yeah. I think. Is, is and so that's why like movie Theo was just so awesome as a character. Yes. Okay, so then we have uh, Julian in the book. Julian is the name of the woman who is pregnant. She's married. She's the love interest. In the movie, Julian is Juliana Moore. The age is different. The disability is different. The marital status is different. Her entire point and whether or not she's pregnant is different. I thought yeah. it was interesting that the merging of these characters that they did, they took away the pregnancy from the Julian character, but they still had the Julian romantic entanglement activist, you know, there character. There were a lot of very interesting choices made. Like Julian was one of them. And then the other one that got me was Luke and Rolf because they completely take out book Luke mm -hmm. and book Rolf turns into movie Luke. Yeah. And I was like, why did you even keep the name? It's so you don't need to keep the name. Yeah. Gonna, it, ah, was basically yeah. <laughs> it was basically Rolf, this, this power hungry guy and then and I thought it was really fascinating and that's this whole point that they completely changed in the movie which is a little disappointing that in the book Julian the one who gets pregnant 
has a disability and the guy whose sperm gets her pregnant had a disability. He was epileptic, Mm -hmm. right? And in the movie, it's more about, oh, well, they wouldn't let a Fuji be the first person to have a baby. They would, you know, switch it out for some posh English lady, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, that's cool. And you're making a point about classism and, and immigration and ethnicity. But I thought that the disability factor that had been played in, um, especially because we get into conversations about eugenics and we get into these ideas yeah. of like who gets to live and who doesn't and who should be breeding or not breeding or whatever. And Oh, that's still very much the same on disability and on race. Both of those have been discriminated groups. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, yes. But I, I thought it was it was different. It was interesting that they changed away from the disability. Yeah. I would have liked them to have kept that as the thing. That- well, when we get into themes like xenophobia is not as much of a thing of the book, but is very much a thing in the movie. Yeah. And you have to wonder if that's because of the difference between 1992 and 2006. That's also, you know, what's your theme here? What's your point? And mm-hmm. if you're going to look at this as race relations and immigration and xenophobia and those type of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we want to keep on characters and we'll come back to themes? Yeah, yeah. Because so. like the yeah, themes, yeah, I, I keep going, oh, well, this relates to this theme and right. that theme, but we're not talking about those just so, yet. <laughs> but kind of bridging off of both of those things. Mm-hmm. So key, illegal immigrant, the first pregnant woman in 18 years, wasn't in the book. Um, written in the film, I thought this was interesting, based on the director's interest in the recent single origin hypothesis of human origins and the status of dispossessed people. So he definitely wanted to change the theme. Yeah. He wanted to make it about racism, which is, which is you know, fine and cool and super relevant today. But here's a quote from the director. The fact that this child will be the child of an African woman has to do with the fact that humanity started in Africa. We're putting the future of humanity in the hands of the dispossessed and creating a new humanity to spring out of that. I thought that was was interesting. Very intentional change there. And so, yes. Okay. Michael Caine was Jasper. Jasper was very small in the book. Basically just there to give a little bit more exposition about Theo and then to have a place where they could stop and pick stuff up. Whereas in the movie, instead of just being a mentor, he was a friend. Much bigger role. Caine based Jasper. I thought this was interesting trivia on his experiences with his friend, John Lennon. Hmm. (laughs) It was the first time that the actor Michael Caine smoked marijuana as a character and the first time that Michael Caine played a character who actively and enthusiastically farted for oh, fun. Yeah. Which, that happens a lot. But it was great. It, it made Jasper a believable character and and a little bit of a breath of something different. This movie well, it's a certainly been... a breath of something else. <laughs> yes. I, I don't like toilet humor. I have a very low tolerance for, Me for fart jokes and stuff. And so I didn't like, okay, I pull my finger. I'm rolling my eyes. But at the same time, the glee that Michael Caine has in his face when he says, come on, pull my finger to the, to the guys right before they kill him. I know, is, but that's like what makes that scene so tragic and so poignant. It's, it is. And his, he's, his finger was shot off and he's still doing the line. He's yeah. still playing the role. Yes. And he's yeah. the jester till the end. Jester till the end, for sure. Yeah. Ugh, Michael Caine. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. Love you so much. Okay, a little tiny thing about casting. So Patrick, the guy with the dreadlocks who was, you know, on the motorcycle and then like chasing them and almost killing them, whatever. That's, that's freaking Jax Teller from Sons of Anarchy. Wow. Oh my God, I love you, Jax Teller from Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and all your other movies too. I just think he's great. Yeah. Yes. And then we have Luke, who is the, the activist, not the father, not the priest. Yeah, he's got an interesting name. Do you want to try it? <laughs> I purposely didn't. Okay. Okay, let me see if I can. To Weltel Ijefor. There you go. Yes. And Wonderful actor. Yeah, I've seen him a couple. The first thing I saw him was uh, in was Kinky Boots. Oh, such a good movie. That was cute. Such a great movie. Movie wreck for anyone who wants to watch it. Kinky Boots. Kinky Boots. Let's see here. Um, we have Miriam, who in the book was African American, um, with a brother. And this was like the whole, but also still a midwife. And in the movie, she's much more of the dowdy, older British lady, uh, no brother. Uh, and she's very religious in the movie. In the book, that was Luke's job, the, the father of the child, the priest Luke. In the movie, the religion kind of has transferred over to Miriam. So they kept a few of those components. They just kind yeah, of blended it up. The adjectives I have for her is the book Miriam was graceful and serene. And then movie Miriam was a clumsy goofball. I don't know about goofball. She well, was she's doing Tai Chi and then she almost falls over. Yeah. she's. I lo- That was a good line, though. You know, do, do, what does she look like? What does she, you know, what do you think yeah. she looks like doing Ernest. out there? He goes, Ernest. Yes, she's. <laughs> Very earnest. It's a very diplomatic answer. Um, and then we had Sid, who was a new character, the immigration officer, who was not in the book at all. And he was one of those characters that is, if you'd had any more of Sid, it would have been too much and annoying. Mm. He was almost too much as it was, but he was very interesting. He was a fully fledged character, even though he's barely in it. He talked about himself in the third person. He had a couple of funny lines. Like, yeah, he, he's he an just, interesting character in himself. Yeah, in a small little thing. And I yeah. thought that's nice that they kind of tossed that I just in. don't like that character introduction. And I see this trope so often, like somebody comes out and they have the gun on, you know, whoever the protagonist is and they're like, oh, you know, how dare you come back? And then they hug each other. And so they're sitting, he pulls out the baton. What'd you call me? He's almost about to hit him and then he laughs. And that's such a trope. I was just like, oh, okay, whatever. That's, but Sid <laughs> is an interesting character outside of that. I just got tired of the trope. Right. I would say, I feel like, and maybe this is wrong. And if it is, I'll just edit it out. But I feel like that is a trope that's used a lot with men interacting with men. Like I'm going to threaten violence to see how you react. And then when you are brave enough or sturdy enough or you don't flinch, then I'll let my guard down and be like, oh, yeah, we're cool, bro, because you almost let me hit you in the fucking head. So Interesting you say that because the first thought that came into my head was uh, Terminator 2 with Linda Hamilton and she plays a very masculine role. Uh, that. <laughs> I just I feel like that posturing is very yeah. much a, um, a part of toxic masculinity where you yeah. have to like you the get punching the each first other. thing that you do when you show up with a new person is you get out your dick you do some measurement right you know and then you move on usually yes different book um okay so there is a big difference in zan versus nigel nigel in the movie is barely there he's just there with his art he's he's got a weird kid he's got a weird kid he's 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 living in a state of denial whatever zan in the book was a very interesting character and of course we're getting his characterization through Theo. I know why he wasn't there because again, the the movie was changing themes and was kind of emphasizing different aspects. But the Zan character and that whole theme of power and power corrupting Mm. is so fascinating that I'm almost disappointed that we did not get that in the movie. Although that would have been, I guess, a a very different movie. So To a certain extent, you have to pick your themes a little bit and it would have muddied the movie a little too much. It would have. I was going to say this till later, but I'll say it now. I feel like this world that P.D. James 
has created is so interesting that you could have had lots of different stories in the same world. I think world. the premise is absolutely fascinating. You could do so much. You could have so many different stories based on this. And this was the story of this. This was, you know, and Zan and, and etc. And then the movie Children of Men was the same world, a slightly different story in there. But man, I just, yeah, the world was amazing. And also I would say that I think that just because the difference of how you show things in fiction versus film, prose versus pictures, is the tapestry of the film was amazing. So much exposition yeah. happened just in the background well, and the set Jasper, design. You look at you, you look at the clips that he's kept and you find out he's a cartoonist and what's been going on. You find out so much about his character. And it's maybe 10 seconds... 10, 15 seconds of film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the exposition of this was really, And really just well how done. when Theo's traveling and think, as he's passing by certain neighborhoods and everything from the graffiti to the people in the cages to the blaring loudspeakers, it gives you such a sense. This claustrophobic, dirty, very grimy. Gray, very gritty. Yes, futuristic thing where in the book had to really explain, explain, explain. And like they say, a picture's worth a thousand words. And this this is definitely one of those times where that was very true. This is a moment that got me in the film is he's dropped off by the terrorists just in the middle of nowhere and what I loved about that whole scene is he's picked up by terrorists he's dropped off by terrorists nobody looks twice yeah. they keep walking they're like eh, whatever whatevs but yeah. when they drop him off there's a sex store in the background it's this pink neon sign and even that looks dull and gray mm-hmm and they had these futuristic things like the the video screens and the types of motorbikes and stuff, but it wasn't so far futuristicy thing. And like it's still it, very relatable, right? In the car, there was um, like three dimensional projection on the the windshield when they, they were driving in the car, and you could totally see that happening. That actually is a that's thing a thing now. that's coming out now, but it yeah. wasn't happening in two thousand and six quite yet. But like so, you know, when we see dystopian stuff, when we see speculative fiction, a lot of times they put things that are futuristic and. Mm-hmm. And eventually we get there and it's based in reality. I just, I found it really interesting. I, I loved the look of this film. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, even though I tend to really like living in worlds of books more as a general rule than living in the worlds of the films, in this case, I just found, but I'm totally jumping to the head. Ah, <laughs> uh, la, 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 la. Okay. Do you want to do themes or differences? Because they're kind of very, well, they're very related. They are very related. So go ahead. Okay, so I have all of these different sort of themes organized between book and film. Uh, one of the interesting ones I thought is, since we're talking about society, is the societies that are created and how they're different. So when we start off with the society, one of our first expositions is about baby Diego and mm-hmm. his death. In both the book and the movie. Yeah. And then the cult of the birth. I thought that one scene in the book where you have the woman in, with the pram and she's got this little baby doll and Theo thinks it's just creepy. And then the other woman comes over and she's cooing at it and it's all distraction so she could take the baby and smash it Mm -hmm. and it captures a lot of the paradox that's involved in this so that's why i say i didn't really like the book but i can appreciate it there's a lot of paradox that's involved Mm -hmm. a lot of irony yeah that that scene was really disturbing (laughs) but i thought it was it was you know they kind of glossed over this a little bit in the movie because they had to but the how the doll making became such a huge thing and it makes it makes sense you know if you took away all the children you know dolls and children's toys and the book was sadder 
I would say the the movie was very emotionally charged, but because there was all this action, because there was all this tapestry of of set design and stuff, and you're just being constantly inundated in the book because it was a slower burn, and because we had instances like the thing with the pram and these other and like discussion of the dolls and the discussion of the sound of children's voices on recordings, and that's the only time you could hear them, and the ideas of of playgrounds being gone and like the lawns be taking over. It I just found it so sad the book was so sad and the movie wasn't as sad it was again emotionally fraught it's more gritty it definitely gritty but also when you go into the movie you already know that someone's pregnant because i mean that's all over the marketing so in the book we got through the whole first half of the book nobody's pregnant i started to wonder oh my god did they just add that pregnancy part (laughs) into the movie to like because that has happened you know you start a book and you have a book that's doing one thing and then they make a movie and they completely gritty it was sad but the movie was definitely a little it had that grittier feel to it yeah Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot. Anyway. <laughs> but one of the things I really did like about the film is that, you know, you're saying that you're inundated with all this stuff. They do take those pauses. It is those very long pauses that they have where, you know, we're just going to watch them throw a ping pong back and forth with their mouths yes. for a bit. There's that flirty fun Yeah, we're, we're just going to watch him walk out of the cafe and he's walking along. And those moments of breathing allow the tension to be that much more when you do see something unexpected. When the bomb goes off, you have much more of that sensation that this was unexpected and the trauma of that. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of all these long shots is that you're there with Leo the entire time. Yes. Okay, so I want to talk about the camera and that seems like a nice yeah. time to do it. The camera work was amazing, as we've both said. I thought it was really interesting. The beginning of the movie, the camera is its own thing. It's watching Theo, but there's a couple times when the camera moves itself away. This was one scene I thought it was really telling. So Theo gets out, he's walking somewhere, and he walks by a mural. And me, looking at the screen, my television screen, look off to the left side to look closer at this mural. And then the freaking camera pans over to that mural to zoom in. And it was like following your natural eye the camera wasn't Theo the camera was like documentary almost looking at this world watching Theo not look at the world you know walking past all the people in their cages and then as we go on and on and on eventually the camera is Theo and at the very end it's all Theo it's right there with him as he's going through the buildings and getting the baby and coming back out the camera is with him it is like part of his journey there's blood splatter on the lens like it is there with him and then at the end Theo dies and the camera turns off and it's like oh my god like it's just this very symbolic way of us us as an audience are detached we're watching this guy he's detached he's getting his coffee oh my god there's a bomb but then as we go on and on and on we get more involved and invested in not only Theo but the the drama of the situation and I just I loved the camera work in this film so so much the camera work is iconic this is one of those films that is noted for its camera work this is the thing that they make film students watch because of the camera work (laughs) And yeah, exactly that. So it's really long shots and kind of struck me is how separated you get from a character when you do cuts. Cause mm-hmm. then you're watching a movie, you're watching something that's produced. Whereas this, you did feel like you were with Theo. You were feeling his journey. When there's a bomb that goes off, you haven't been cutting to this scene, cutting into that scene. And so there isn't that separation of time. Mm-hmm. This is all one moment of time and that suddenness feels that much more, I guess, fragile. 
that your piece is that much more fragile. The camera work in the car, when they're all in the car and they're driving and there's this flirty thing and they're happy and they're talking and the camera's moving around in the car and then Julian is shot and then they're being attacked and the camera's literally in the car. You feel like one of the people in the car swiveling your head and looking front and back and then getting out of the car and amazing and then to end just on the ground as the, and then the camera's left behind. They get back and they kill the cops. They get back in the car, they leave and the camera stays as if the past Passenger has been left out. Yeah. You know? That was Julian being left out. Left out. Oh my God. You guys. (laughs) So good. Yeah, the movie is absolutely incredible. And that's why I I can't believe this director made the freaking Harry Potter movie and then did and and Yo Mama Tambien and then this. It's like, holy crap, you are so talented. So that's why the book was disappointing compared to the movie, because the movie is so exceptionally good. It's exceptionally good. And then when you read the book, it's like, uh, so I'm glad I watched the movie before I read the book. Now, see, I read the book first. I I mean, I saw the movie and I remember liking it. And then I read the book and I was like, gosh, yeah, this book is actually better than I thought it was going to be and I know that we're going to disagree on this but I didn't dislike the book I think as much as you do and that's fine that's fine we're all yes. allowed to like and dislike but the movie just it just hands fight, down fight, fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> the the movie's just hands down balls. so okay anyways oh, that's you your favorite word of the day balls. it is it is <laughs> did you have another something about theme do you want no, me to I just, t- I, here I'll, I'll do a theme theme of power um, and how power corrupts we saw this much more in the book yes. than in the film in the film we did see it with Luke trying to take over the fishes and like killing Julian and like all of that stuff that's definitely a power and corruption whatever and at the end when Theo puts on the ring he already starts getting into that dictatorial mood mm-hmm. and somebody's looking at the ring and he feels resentful about it he's like yeah. no this is my power my power i've killed zan i'm now in charge and it's not like it's excalibur where you kill the thing and you get excalibur you're it's now not a king. magic ring yeah just ask jasper someone could shoot your finger off <laughs> <laughs> so but, yeah it's like the ring doesn't make you the warden but symbolically there it is so to me the the if you're looking at like the main theme of the book wait, the main I, theme was how do you seize power? And it's a lot of, you seize it through hope and fear. Yeah. Is it better to be feared or loved? Right? Well, it's both. I mean, you have, this is the baby. This is your hope. And if power is becoming a little bit weak, well, we might throw in a bomb somewhere mm-hmm. and make people afraid so that they cling to well, stability. The whole thing that the that they did, the council did in the book was about freedom from fear, <laughs> freedom from boredom, freedom from, you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, keep you docile. Keep you, we're safe here. In our soldier organized, you know, little world as the rest of the world burns. Okay, so it reminds me a lot of this Franklin Delano Roosevelt speech. And it was these four freedoms that are specific to America and what America can expect. Norman Rockwell painted a series based on that. They were freedom from fear, freedom from want. So, you know, just having Thanksgiving meals and having this abundance of food. We don't have famine. We've never experienced famine in our world. You know, how often do we really experience fear? Like, serious fear. Right. We're very safe in that respect yeah, especially compared England, to other there there are bomb threats that happened uh i was there back in 2000 and it was slowing down but the ira was still a very big thing well, you still have bomb threats and just not only that not present but you live in the shadow of history of well this is when the blitz happened this 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 yeah. neighborhood didn't used to be here this one was here there's here's the signs of it the worst we have in california where you and i are sitting is you can go, i was gonna say you can go down to santa cruz you're like oh and this is the there's a crack in this building where the you know oh the marina did 
district in San Francisco. This building was gone, blah, blah, blah. But that's a natural thing. That's not, you well, know. And th- this is a little bit of our privilege. We don't have to fear cops as much as certain populations. Right. We're both very white. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't have the same fear that other people have to deal with. But one of the reviews I read about the movie in 2006 when it came out was talking about how in the Middle East where there's all these cafe bombings and these bus bombings and that's like almost commonplace and that has brought it to England in the movie. It made because yeah. the bomb happens and then Theo goes to work because and I think he says third one in the matter of weeks or something like that. Like He's not affected at all by the bomb. Really. No, he and pretends like, that yeah. that's why he wants to leave work. But it's but it's built in like everybody's people are more upset about baby Diego died, which, of course, is a, a bigger global situation. Theo, it's more like he witnessed a car accident where it's a little bit disturbing but it's not anything personal. Although we do get the great line about the ringing in his ears yeah, and his ears are ringing. Yeah, that's a swan song of that sound. That Right? Thing. And then she says, you know, that sound is those things dying and you'll never hear that tone again. So yeah. enjoy it while it lasts. As the camera very slowly moves away from her and she gets farther and farther away. I don't know. I found that terrifying of, no, don't don't take away my sounds. Oh my gosh. So good. Okay. Okay, so power. Yes, power and how it collapsed. And well, and Zan too. Like, I don't think that Zan in the book started as an evil person. No, he was just a rich kid, but he, he was, was a very insightful. Entitled. Yeah. So entitled. And then he was like, well, and here I am. And I, I have this tendency sometimes of let me be in charge and I will fix it all and I will no. do it the way that I want to do it. Not you. That's the best way. So <laughs> it's a good thing I have too many skeletons in my closet and will never run for public office. No, just kidding. It's also good that you're competent at a lot. <laughs> That's true. Competent at some things. So Zan wasn't evil. He didn't start off evil. And I thought it was really interesting when Theo is pointing out to Rolf. Rolf's like, well, I'm going to do this. And he's like, well, yeah, the warden is doing that. Well, I'm going to do this. Well, that's exactly what the warden said he's going to do. So how are you really going to be different from the warden? You're not going to be different from the warden. You're still, you just want to be in charge. Yeah, I I love that scene because it it just shows how insightful Theo is and how intelligent he is. And he just breaks that down. And you see this, I think, because of his history background, I think. With a lot of young activists, a lot of college students who have strong opinions, but they don't have the background and the facts to really defend them yet. So it's an idealism of, well, we should do this. Well, have you thought it through? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here are all the problems with that that you're not thinking about. Here's the ultimate consequences. So Theo is, we're told that he's intelligent in the movie and he does have some moments, but we see that shine in the book a lot more. He is a very crafty. Well, okay. So that's the difference. I would say in the book, he's very intelligent. In the movie, he's very crafty. Yeah. When they're going to steal a car, he takes the keys out of the other car so they can't be followed as easily. I mean, that's just freaking brilliant, you know? And there was a couple other, like, opening the car He doesn't panic under pressure. He no, just... he's good guy to have on your side, for yeah. sure. But in the book, he's definitely much more of this high-level intelligent. And that, that comes from this level of detachment. I've seen the history play out. Haven't you never read history? Your little group cannot do what you want it to do. You literally cannot do it, you know? And he's thinking about the historical consequences of stuff. Yep. I hope we're not making a point that education leads to detachment <laughs> and you hide away in your ivory well, Oxford Tower. leads to understanding. There you go. Okay, and Theo has better. a much stronger understanding of what's going on. And so it does come off as cynical, it's, it's, but it's honest and it's real and it's pragmatic. It's interesting that he has a better understanding of humanity, but still chooses to be so alone and not want to be a He's part. Clinical. He's Yeah, he is very clinical. I just I think that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of my other themes Let's see here. Faith and hope in the book. Yeah, so I have religion and hope written here because religion is huge in both of these. 
there's a lot of religious yes. images and symbology. Yes. There's an emphasis that religion is both foolish, stupid, and the people who were religious were the most hopeful in the book. There is that paradox. And then you have the five fishes. Yes. I thought that was just hysterical that they fight for equal rights, acceptance, and human kindness. And then you have Rolf, who is just another dictator. Yep. Hiding yep. behind those ideologies. Yes. There is a line, this baby belongs to God. And I was just like, oh, whatever. I want to roll my eyes so hard at that. Like, no, the baby is the baby. You know, the baby will belong to the mother until it's ready to do its own okay, thing. But, but it's I, like the baby belongs to society. The baby belongs to God. The baby. What I really liked was how in the movie, Theo says to Key, who's the father? And she goes, I'm a virgin to like fuck with him. Yeah. You know? And then she kind of laughs. She's like, I don't know. You know, whatever. And it's not a big deal. Right before Theo kills Zan, Zan calls Julian a whore. He's like, it doesn't. You know, the, the woman, well, she was a, the child's the child of a whore. And then yeah. he was like, boom. <laughs> you know? Because he's jealous because he hasn't gotten to sleep with Julia. Well, yeah. So for me, this was a conflagration of Mary, you know, the, the mother who was a virgin and then Mary the whore in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they're both these characters at once where they have multiple male interests. Mm-hmm. The father could have been this person or that person. And, you know, who knows? And still they're the new mother. Right. And that's their role. I thought in the book, Science as a Failed God. Yes, because they tried so hard to fix it with their science. Thought it was interesting whose fault it was changed from the book to the movie. In yeah, the- so it was sperm. The sperm died out in the book, and that yeah. was it was men. Yeah, damn you, men. Damn you, men. <laughs> and in the in the movie, it, there was a statement that was said at some point about it being women. Women weren't being able to get pregnant. And in the book, one of the things that they point to is that even frozen sperm became suddenly infertile. So yes. it was a mass thing. I also found it interesting that it wasn't as important that they couldn't fix it. It was more, the betrayal was more that they couldn't figure out why. Right. So science is a failed god. Okay, this is another one of those scenes that I thought was really striking. And I understand why they didn't put it in the movie. But it's when they're attacked by the Omegas. What struck me is you always have this thing about Christianity and paganism. You have these Omegas who are becoming these very paganistic sort of savages. And yet, when they're pulled over, they speak perfect British English. They speak completely civilized. And it's that, that dichotomy of what is civilization? Civilization. Mm-hmm. What is that civilization in society? Well, you know? and even that, it's just not complete chaos. Like they, they knew in, in the book when they got attacked by the Omegas, they knew that the Omegas would kill one person. Yeah. And like, it, it's the sacrifice. We pick one of us to be the sacrifice and then the rest of us will probably be able to get away because they'll be distracted and then they're not going to chase after. They want to burn the car, do this violence. They really only want to kill one of us. We almost have an ability to choose which one of us it is that, that they're going to choose. And then of course it, it happens to be Luke, which is sad on a myriad of levels but if you want to go into the religious aspect he's the former priest who's then killed in this ritualistic sort of way yeah sacrificing himself for the Mary figure with the baby so Luke is the Christ-like figure (laughs) I feel like we need a who's the Christ-like figure this week jingle or something because Oh my god! Okay, so history being doomed to repeat itself definitely saw in the book um, in terms definitely of the power being corrupted and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if we really saw the same theme in the... History is also a bit of hope. There is this idea we need to have a legacy because there is a hope for a future and therefore we're going to preserve this. Even when they don't feel like there's really hope, there is that kind of holdout. Mm -hmm. That's why they're continuing to do stuff. Okay, so we both read On the Beach last year and everybody was going to die and one of the things that bothered us is that no, 
nobody seemed to have an appropriate response to that. Nobody was having all the sex or doing all the murder or doing all the drugs or like being angry or trying to fight against it. They were just like docilely accepting it. And I feel like this book and movie combo gave us what we missed in that. Yeah. Because people were struggling. People were fighting. People were freaking out. People were having all these reactions. And But that's why I love that pram scene where you have the woman who loves the doll and the woman who smashes the doll. Right. You have that dichotomy. It's so believable. Perfectly shown in that. Yep. It was, yeah. Okay. Okay. So another major theme I found was the theme of the journey. The journey of of self as well as the physical movement of the journey. Both cases, we had both types of journey. Both of them. We had from alone to connected, detached to super involved. The movie, he moved from despair to hope. Definitely. He was so depressed at the beginning and then he became very hopeful. The terror of taking responsibilities for other people's lives or happiness was a major part of Theo's character in the book. Then he eventually became willing to take responsibility for other people's lives and happiness. And by putting on the ring at the end, he's like, he wants to be the warden. He wants to take on the responsibility of the whole country. But he's not necessarily going to be a good warden because he's already coveting his power. He's already having those issues. I'm not saying that he is, but I definitely, it's it's a change from I'm just going to live in my little house all by myself. And I literally don't want any responsibility at all to I'm putting on this ring and I'm now in charge. For better or worse, (laughs) he made that transition. So we talked a little bit about this before, but how about the change in theme where we're looking a lot more at xenophobia in the movie? Mm -hmm. So instead of disability, it's xenophobia. And I thought that was really fascinating that Britain has been a colonizer. At one point, you know, you have that that phrase, the sun Sun never never sets on the the British British Empire. Empire. Yes. And here, Britain is the one where everybody's rushing into it. But they also have that because of their history as a colonization country, that they do have a lot of immigration that they're dealing with. They do have a lot of xenophobia that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. That's something that I thought was really fascinating. I feel like the tone of that and the change of that is so relevant. It was in 2006 and is super relevant now in 2019. people in cages. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. People in cages. Let's uh, emphasize that a little bit. Yes. And othering and walls. And we need to keep these people out. Yes. And then just like they literally stole things from the Abu Ghraib, the visuals of Abu Ghraib. I mean, it, it was not even subtle the way yeah. that they were making this political point about When I originally saw it, I thought of Kosovo, actually. Oh, okay. But yeah, it yeah, is. No, it, no yeah. It's, it's the Abu Ghraib. It's, it's, it's replicated. You can find but the side-by-side comparison. I love this irony is there is that, oh, they come over, they have anchor babies, and they have all these babies, and we're getting populated out. And in the movie, who's the savior? The Fuji. Yeah. Yeah, the Fuji yeah. anchor baby. Well, okay, and that's interesting, too, is because one of the notes that I have, when James published her novel in 1992, her native Britain had had a sub-replacement fertility rate of almost 20 years. That is, not enough children were being born to keep the population stable, and demographic decline could only be held at bay by increased lifespans among the elderly and by high rates of immigration from more fertile regions of the world. I think that's really interesting, too. Like, everyone's afraid of these anchor babies, and people are afraid of immigration, and yet, we need more people because we're not replacing our... Now, you can make an argument about whether or not we should be replacing at the levels we were because there's only so many resources on this planet. And I think that's a different, well, very a important conversation of population. to have. Yes, but I do think it's interesting. So she, P.D. James, took this idea of the underpopulation and then took it to its logical or illogical almost extreme, which is what good science fiction does. And yes. I think what good speculative fiction does. What if, and then you take it all the way to the end and yeah. try to like live in that world and that possibility. And yeah, I which is the handmaid in steel as well. Exactly. Oh, 
God, dystopian stuff is just the bomb. <laughs> okay. So I have a question for you. Okay. Do you find the film progressive or do you find it othering? Um, do I think of it as othering? Yeah. Is in terms, in the negative connotation of saying other is bad, because that's usually when you people say othering. Saying othering is... Us versus them tribal mentality. To me, it's it's a neutral term. It's like cultural appropriation. It's a neutral term. And then what attributes that you have onto that, you know, oh, how see, is it I don't exploited? see the term othering as neutral. I feel like there's a definite negative connotation. I see the term itself as just mean a term and then how it's used are you othering as so I don't I don't know if I grant your your dichotomy there you're asking me if I believe it's this or this and I don't know if I would say either well, or I'm both I'm going to say or... that you know using othering as a contrast to progressivism is it progressive by having racism as the target theme of the movie okay I think it's important to note though that it's not actually racism it's immigration because Luke is black in the movie. They have a variety of ethnicities represented and that's not where the lines are. It's were you born here or not? Does that make sense? Because again, in England, it's a melting pot. I didn't feel like it was racism. I'm repeating myself now. As much as it was immigration, once this point happened, the Omegas or whatever it was, then we don't want anybody who's not born here, but it's born here more than the color of your skin. I see what you're saying. And I think that the reason I can say that is because they kept, they very intentionally made Luke black. So as for being progressive, I don't know if this was a progressive film because to me, progressive means progress and like there's conservatism and there's liberalism. And if you want to say, and I'm not sure it's making a, a statement in those camps. Okay, so this is one of uh, my little notes when we look at the baby because the baby is very different. In the book, it's a male because it was the men who were having a fertility issue. Mm-hmm. And so you have baby Jesus is being born. Right. In the movie, it is baby Jesus. Like, when she brings out the baby girl, conflict stops. The baby is a peacemaker. Like, literally a peacemaker. Just by her very presence. Yes. The whole point of the Jesus narrative is that the weak will inherit the earth. He was an underclass. And how do you get much more underclass in female, black, poor, refugee in that particular area? Sure. The director said that he picked an African woman because he thought, you know, life started in Africa, blah, blah, blah. So it was very intentional that she was an African but I think in the context of the story, the reason why she was in danger and underclass and all that was more of her Fuji status than her skin color. Hmm. Again, because of Luke. Okay. Do you feel like it's progressive or not? I wonder a little bit about tokenism. I appreciate what the director said is that this is also symbolic of where humans came from. And so that takes it out of, well, this is a token thing. Because for me, it was sort of an open question. I can see an argument being made for both sides. And I originally was leaning towards progressivism, but I like to hear arguments of, well, is this otherness so I can have more to sort of mm-hmm. verbally chew on, I suppose. It's interesting to me because you bumped on it and you were like, oh, I wonder if we're making a point about racism because, you know, Key was black, yada, yada, yada. Whereas I feel like if they had kept it as ableism, but that was a different story. And I think that they needed to update it, not to say that we don't need to have those stories about people with disabilities, because we definitely do, and and they're not represented enough in media. But I think this movie was made in 2006, when stuff was happening in the Middle East, and when immigration was starting to hit this fever pitch. And it was like, a lot of the foundation was happening then, which has led us to where we are now, with people in freaking cages, and Brexit, and all of these wonderful things, wonderful sarcastic people wonders well, sarcastic. <laughs> anyways because 
because that was the time it was being made, I feel like it was important that they were telling that immigration story. Okay. So I thought a big important theme was about what we give up freedom-wise for our version of safety and security. And again, the council's aims were to protect security, comfort, pleasure, corresponding to freedom from fear, freedom from want, and freedom from boredom. This reminded me so much of the Patriot Act. Yes. That is basically the Patriot Act. Right? The Patriot Act for sure. But I was thinking we have Cambridge Analytics and Google tracking stuff on your phone. And so it's like, well, I don't care if Google knows that I looked for curtains yesterday because then tomorrow when I turn on Facebook, Facebook's going to give me ads about curtains and da 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 da. At the same time, it's a little disquieting that like everything's all connected and they're tracking every blasted thing that I ever do on the internet. Now, you know, you have that thing of like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. Also, it's creepy as heck. And like, who knows what's going to happen down the road. And I really like Amazon. I like getting crap delivered to me, you know, in 48 hours. That's great. And I like it enough that I'm willing to let Amazon know all my interpersonal thoughts because there's a freaking Alexa. What's the weather? Right now in Fresno, it's 60 degrees Fahrenheit with mostly sunny skies. My point is that like I live with this freaking robot that is listening in to me at all times and ready to activate herself as soon as I say her name. That is a freedom that I have given up. And you don't know how much you are being recorded. Well, exactly. And I don't know. I know that it's a lot and I'm sure it's even more. And I have decided that that's okay. But here's that's my choice to make that decision. But here's what I find really interesting about the history of this and, and how this has come about. We have George Orwell and he was warning about government. What we've actually done is given up our freedom to businesses. Yeah. That's and awful. we've willingly done that. And Not for freedom, but for convenience. For convenience. So if you told me 20 years ago, your phone is going to track everywhere you go. And you're actually going to be happy about this because then you can look at your timeline and see where you went. And isn't that cute and cool? 20 years ago, I would, no, that's 1984. We can't let that happen. And now I'm like, yeah. But it, it's funny. Like when I was a kid in the 80s, I remember my mom said, don't get into a car with strangers. Later, it was in don't talk to people on the internet. Don't tell them where you live. And now I literally use my phone to call a stranger and have them show up in front of my house with their Uber sticker. And then I get in their car and I pay them for the privilege. So you're getting in cars with strangers after telling them where I live. Like <laughs> I, I get it. It's weird. No question. Anyway. So that is very interesting. Yes. But can we talk about the ending? Because the oh. ending difference was pretty major. I thought the movie absolutely did a superb bookend ending of this. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, we have baby Diego. He died and he was useless. He never did anything in his life. He was this hero, but he dies in a bar fight and he's held up publicly. Everybody knows. And then Theo, he was an actual hero. That was an actual sacrifice. And the only one to witness it was Key. Mm -hmm. And so I love that as a bookend of the movie. It it is so gloriously done. So yes, he dies. It is sad. Um, (laughs) The way you said, yes, he dies, but it's sad. Whatever. It's sad. It's fine. No, it's sad. It is sad. Emote correctly, <laughs> but she's gonna get on the boat, and the boat is called tomorrow. And like, okay, I thought it was really. And the camera stops because of course our camera. I will is say Theo. this: if I, the boat were called tomorrow in the book, I would roll my eyes at oh, obvious symbolism is obvious, but it's okay in a movie. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What I thought was interesting is that this was such Theo's journey. 
Yeah. Like, even when she's giving birth, the camera is on Theo. And I'm like, uh, okay. And then, you know, it's all, it's Theo, 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 which is fine. But it's kind of like, he's not the main person. It reminded me of like, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Like, mm. there's this other epic stuff happening. And then yeah. there's like these side characters who are important in their own ways. And he's definitely more important in some ways than they are. I get you. But like, this side thing. And, but he's our story. So when he stops, the story ends and we don't get to know the rest of it, you know? And that's that's okay because that's not the story that we were telling. I, I thought it was really, it's cool. It was brave. The thing I, I kind of liked with her is when we first see that she's pregnant, she's around a bunch of cows and she's talking about they cut off their teats so that the machines are easier to use. Again, to juxtapose, there's globalism versus infertility. That's sort of made clear in the way the film cinematography works. But then you have her in this sort of organic milk producing cow and there she is in the stable practically in a manger and what they do that's destructive because it's socially expedient convenience yeah so I will not let my tits get chopped off for convenience I will let Amazon (laughs) listen to me but okay so about the ending the book the detective novel affirms our belief in a rational universe because at the end of the mysteries solved pd james typically writes detective novels so in the children of men there is no such comforting resolution yeah. normally pd james writes detective novels and the mystery gets solved and it, everybody's yeah. happy there's a bow this book the mystery's not been solved we don't know what's about to happen and it's left very much up in the air. The yeah, book you get some is... hints that this could happen, that could happen, and yeah. Ugh. Okay, what's the book movie macro versus micro? I felt that the book gave us a wider sense of the world, and the movie was much more about these people existing in the world. And the movie relied on the tapestry of the set design and all that stuff to do exposition for us, but we were really just with these two characters. Whereas the book, I felt, did a better job of being about the whole world and all all of England and what's going on over here and what's happening with these Omegas and what's happening with these people and like this background and all the names of these council people and their histories and stuff. It felt very macro versus micro. Part of it is because novels can do that. They tend to be able to do that better than movies. Okay. Here's the thing I thought was really interesting. One gun, one bullet versus all the guns. That's right. That's what my note says. (laughs) Because literally in the book, he's got a gun and a bullet and he uses the gun to threaten the old couple, but he doesn't want to shoot anybody. And in the movie, Theo does not touch a gun the whole time, but there's tons of guns. Like there's lots of weapons. And I just thought that was very interesting. In the movie, it's so violent. You almost get desensitized at the end because it's just rat-a-tat-tat. There's so many bullets flying everywhere. In the book, literally two bullets get shot and one of them meets its mark and everything, everything changes because of that one bullet in his one gun. Okay, so I have some notes and then I have my final thoughts. Do you have any other themes or differences you want to talk about? Let's see. I thought the baby naming convention was cute and funny and ultimately really beautiful in the movie where we have Frawley, Frawley. and then Bazooka. Bazooka! And there he is just reacting. Name the first yeah, the, baby in the world. In the Frawley. <laughs> and then there's Dylan and I thought of Dylan Thomas dying of the light. Aww. Yeah, so that was... Oh, Dylan's a good name. It's a boy or a girl name. It's fine. Yeah. Dylan, who is sort of the rebirth of idealism. Yes, it shows their bond. It was yeah. a, a shorthand for their bond. Okay. So my notes, the music, I thought they did a really great job with the music in the movie. Oh, yeah. A great mix of older stuff. and Goodbye and Ruby Tuesday when he's about to like just let his let wife Hilda die. die. 
Why? And that, it was a perfect song to go with that mm -hmm. because it wasn't just, you know, some obvious morning song. It was, it was just perfectly yep. hit on all those notes. Yeah. And then we also have music. the choral music to, to kind of bring us back into like the holy aspect of stuff and the sacredness. We've talked about the camera work, the texture, the lighting. Some of the lighting in this movie was just beautiful. And what was in the dark versus what was in the light. And at the end when we're in the fog and, but then like the light shining through the car windows, um, waking him up when he's asleep in the car, when they're at the school, the light coming yeah. in the windows. And it's like definitely the sunset kind of, I think. On the playground, and it's like she's a child having a child. Mm -hmm. And the, just the, again, from the camera work, the camera moves back, so we're in this room, and then through the perfect framed break in the window, you can look through and see her outside. So she's through the broken glass on the other side, but still in the sunset, waning light. Oh, yeah. Just beautiful. Okay, this is one of my notes. This future might not be that far away. A police state, terror, and fear, and the anti immigration, and people in cages. We've been here. We might be here again soon. We're here now. Mm. It makes it so much more scarier and so much more believable, which makes movies like this so important. Our hero fears death. Our hero is not always heroic, but he is smart and crafty, and he chooses his heroism. I thought that was interesting. He had to make a, a choice to be a hero, which we've talked before, and specifically in 310 to Huma, about the hero making the choice to be heroic versus not, and how that actually adds to the level of heroism. So I've had this discussion about millennials. I think millennials get an unfair casting as, oh, they're selfish and self-indulged, and they're this and that. It's like, you know, every single... 18 year old has these characteristics and then they grow out of them. I just thought it was really funny what, you know, he looks at Omegas as proud, uncontrollable, selfish. Did we make these monsters? And it's like, they're 18. That's. Well, and they also grew up being fawned over and treated yeah. as super special. I like the line when he says, if you treat children as gods, they'll grow up to be devils. Yeah. Like, that's a good line. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with millennials. That's any but kind of. A lot of, of his parenting. Theo looks at women as these unbalanced creatures because they don't have children. And so some of them just go off. They get obsessed with babies and think that they're real. And you have the other ones that are just wantonly destructive. So oh, that kind of as imbalanced. if, like, the natural status of a woman is to have children and since there's no more children like women don't understand how to exist in the world anymore yeah okay yes which is a very misogynistic thing I think that could be said about all genders I think all genders would freak the fuck out if there was no more children oh, yeah. it's not just a women thing and not every woman has that biological imperative to procreate so yeah indeed just the way he classifies people children are this you know women are that but there's also that point where Zan tells him I know what your life is going to be you're going to be a historian you're going to want a wife who is intelligent enough to uh, to make you look bad at a dinner table, but not as smart as you. You're going to have two children. You're not going to be emotionally involved, and hopefully they'll be intelligent and go on their own way. And yeah. Just he had his whole life plotted out. And yep, that was what happened to Theo. Pretty much. Until it didn't anymore. But yeah. yeah. So kind of these putting people into boxes, and we're just going to cast this whole set of Omegas as being this. Right. Oh, okay. So here's my main problem with the book. Mm. Okay. I think I've gotten a few of your problems with the book, but okay. here's mine. The love story. Uh, it yeah. felt shoehorned in. I didn't like it. I There's didn't no need it. I didn't want it. You don't see the relationship develop. And that's what kills me with a love story. Exactly. He's just, he's drawn to her. He wants her. He's jealous of these other people who've gotten to be with her. And through no actual bonding or deep conversations, yeah. he's suddenly madly in love with her. Gag. So I read a lot of romance novels. Why? Because I like them. They're fun. Okay, fire it off. I'm sorry. That was very judgy. I will take yeah, it Yeah, you are so judgy. I... 
Damn yep. millennials. <laughs> I'm not. Okay, whatever. Anyways. Oh, yeah, so but you act like fun. You read a lot you of. in your box. Yes. So you read a lot of romance, romance novels. Yeah, I do. They're okay. fun. I, I, I have my serious stuff, and then I just want something like sure, sure, popcorn fine. and goofy. I, I'm just going to say that if you have insta-love, it's not a good novel. You have to have a relationship develop. You have to see the characters falling in love. You fall in love with them as they do that. And if the chemistry isn't there, it just falls flat. So that's what this felt like. It felt like the insta-love, we just need to have this thing to be a thing and it would have been better if it weren't yes but i also thought it was interesting that zan oh i'll marry her and make her have this great life and then you have zero well i'm going to take care of you and make you have a great life oh but he wants the nuclear family thing mother father baby like you know whatever but they're both doing it at the same time that they are seizing power in different ways but it's the same role i'm going to be the powerful guy because i got the one baby yep the one baby to rule them all or the one woman who you know whatever like yeah or an access to the sperm of the one... Uh, <laughs> the baby to rule them all. Yes. The novel's ending, I've talked about ambiguous. Will Theo be corrupted? Probably. Who is he really? We have no fucking idea. <laughs> Sudden realization, we don't know what he'll do. And more importantly, we don't know why. Like, I feel like it's one thing to not know what someone's about to do. If the reason you don't know what they're going to do is because you don't know what their motivations are at this point. Like, he's suddenly in love with her. So, like, that feels like he's whispering to her, we're going to be together, we're going to be together. Like, his motivation is her but like because like you said it wasn't built in it it just it feels so false at the end yeah. and i just i really it was it, a very false it note. didn't it didn't work for me the loss of xan is really hard for me the character the whole point of him the discussion of tyrants and freedom all of that stuff well it's I, also I a great discussion to have of how do we fall into dictatorships mm-hmm. and he is a dictator so how did he get into that position why did the society allow him into that position right and that's a very relevant discussion to have if yes. you're listening you should have that discussion with people. Yes, you should. <laughs> okay, so I thought also this is an interesting thing that his Theo's moment of change. So in the book, it was pity and a literal knock in the head by the SSP, the secret police, right? He, he feels bad. He gets like actually hurt. And that's what brings him back in. We don't really see him struggle um, in the in the movie. He was an activist. He's depressed. He's pretty much ready for something to do. He wants something to look forward to. He's pretty quick to be like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. Like he, there's not a lot of moment of struggle. He doesn't have to be, although he does also get hit in the head and dragged into a car. So I thought that was kind of funny. And he pretends like he doesn't need the money and isn't going to do it. But we all know he is, even from the beginning. So, oh, okay. I said before there were five screenwriters for this movie. I thought that was that was interesting. They worked really hard at making it and, and adapting it. They did a good job. I agree. And normally too many cooks ruins the soup, but this was one where they did a really good I job. I did notice that the, the director didn't read the original source material. Huh. Yeah, I uh, didn't want to be too swayed by it. But P.D. James herself says that she's very pleased with the end result. So Yeah, I imagine that's got to be really difficult as an author to see such a massive change in your work and still be accepting of it. Right. Well, I think it really gets to the idea of like, okay, we start with apples and they might be the apples from my yard. And then I take my apples and I make pie. And then you're like, hey, can I have some of your apples? And I say, sure. And then you make um, applesauce. Well, applesauce. And people are like, my God, this is the best applesauce ever. And I'm like, but my pie was pretty good. And they're like, yeah, yeah, your apples are great. You do a good job raising apples. But Jennifer's applesauce is freaking amazing. Like, have you had it? So I really feel like that's this. I actually have one award for my applesauce. 
No way. Yeah, for the Fresno Fair, I've won like sweepstakes twice. For your applesauce? Yeah. It was so many, it was so long ago. I had trophies. Trophies. For your applesauce? Trophies, Kalia. It was sweepstakes. It was like not just like the best applesauce, it was the best in that entire category of cooking things. So, can I tell you a secret? Sure. I don't like applesauce. You suck. <laughs> no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I don't like avocados or applesauce. I like applesauce in baking not by itself. Because in baking, you don't really notice. Because it's yeah, kind sure. of a texture thing. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, no, I've put it into something I didn't have oil and I think I put, used applesauce for something, but I can't remember now. And I don't even remember if it worked out. Wow, this is a tangent. Congratulations <laughs> on your applesauce Thank you. prowess. Okay, la la. And your apples are very nice, Kalia. Thank you. We have an apple tree that we're trying to not let die. Although it's the Fresno weather is trying really hard to kill my apple tree. So we're thanks. really digressing. Okay. Do you have anything else before? we say if it was worth, uh, worth your time? People don't have sex anymore. Women have orgasms and it's the contraction without the pleasure. Like the whole thing about sex is off. Yeah, I don't buy it because I feel like that's like saying that the biological imperative is part of what makes sex good. And as somebody who does not want to have any more children, I still really enjoy my orgasms. And as somebody who doesn't have children, I think orgasms are fantastic. Right. They're the best. Plus, I feel like that also just totally takes takes away all queer sex. So, um, fuck that noise. (laughs) (laughs) So, is that Theo as an unreliable narrator? Yes. Okay. I mean, is he a woman? (laughs) No. And he's obviously not sleeping with anybody. And that's a lot, maybe, of just depression. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have children anymore. I I can see how libidos might go down because you're like, God. But at the same time, I could see libidos going way up, too. Like, this is a moment of escape. That was my thing with On the Beach. Nobody's having sex. Everybody should be having sex. Everybody should be high and having sex because if the world's about to end... of the population should be high and having sex. Sure. But uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, there would be more of that because that's how you escape. Do you know what I mean? Like, So it's an interesting question about society and why... Why is Britain surviving? You know, why do people still go to work? And I can understand when, you know, a disaster happens, like the apocalyptic thing happens. Well, why didn't you just totally go hedonistic? You still need to eat. You still need farmers. You're still having a a society function, even if it is dying. I can see the initial, you know, screw the world, which is kind of what's going on with the Omegas. But I can also see, you know, stuff needs to be done. We can't all just massively suicide. Well, you don't have to, but you could. I feel like, you know how those people say, live today as if it's your last day and how that's totally crap. It is. Okay, because if today was your last day, I'm sorry, I like you, but this is not what I would be doing, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sad. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. the reason why we do this now is because we want this to come out on Friday. The point is that like we do stuff today because there's going to be a tomorrow. Right. We think about our future and that really dictates our presence. And so if there's no future... I feel like the the what's going on in the presence, it would be so fundamentally changed. And it is fundamentally changed, but it's not like you don't have a tomorrow. You do have a tomorrow. You don't have another like, 50 years. Right. Well, and there's nobody coming after you. So see, that's right. that's where like the analogy kind of, or the metaphor, I suppose, kind of falls apart a little bit because it's not about like there's no tomorrow, there's no next week, but it is like there's nothing after us. So then it gets into this idea of part of the reason why we amass wealth is so that we can pass it on, right? Not Not the whole reason. 
reason, like, you know, people who don't have children, like that's different. Maybe it's philanthropy or other things. But a lot of things that we have in our society are built upon the idea of like, I want a better life for my children. I want the next generation to be okay. Even if you don't have kids, you can be like, global warming is bad. Let's not fuck over the planet because generations of humans will need to like breathe clean air. So that motivates what we do now. And if all of that is wiped away, you know what I mean? Then there are depressing amount of people. And you can look up at the study and give like a real statistic about it. There are depressing amount of people who believe that Armageddon is going to happen during their lifetime. And because of that, we don't get the change that we need in our society. Yeah. And that's because if you don't believe that, you know, your children are going to exist and your grandchildren are going to exist, what need do you have to keep the planet in what's your motivation? Decent condition. Why be a good steward of the planet? If the, yeah. 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 And again, that's a point about religion too, about how that can make it people very selfish and not thinking about the future because they don't believe that there's going to be a future. And I think that well, this the book that they have is in the afterlife, you'll be with God. Right. And I feel like the book discussed that. In, yeah. a, in a much more tangible, bigger, macro-level way than the movie did, which is fine. They're telling different stories. Remember, apples, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I found that really, yeah, interesting. Okay, so was this worth your time? The movie, absolutely, yes. Okay. I wasn't a huge fan of the book. If you want to read it and you like it, kudos. You really don't have to. It's different enough that it will probably be a disappointment if you start off with the movie. So my things on the book, I would say, yes, the book was worth my time. Despite the love story, shoehorned in. I think that it makes good points about power and freedom and society, and I think that it is relevant and harrowing and necessary. I think that the idea of not just living for today, but using for today to prepare for tomorrow is valid and often ignored. The ideas were interesting. The diction and the writing style totally works for me. The tone was well conveyed. I had gut-level emotional reactions. I wanted to visit that world again in 20 years to see what had happened. So for me, yes, this book was totally worth my time. I liked it. So what I would love is to have that as a premise and have 20 different authors write short stories based on that premise. That would be very cool. Yeah. And the movie I wrote, hell yes, so well done. <laughs> the yeah. movie makes me want to make movies, makes me not want to make movies because I'll never do it as good as this. Makes me want to watch it again to see the things I missed, made me want to not ever watch it again because it was so scary and sad. The jump scares were perfect. The tapestry of set design is amazing. Camera work is phenomenal. The acting is good. I had the ending as optimistic and I want to revisit this world also in 20 years and see what optimistic. the heck is Yet sad. Yes. Yep. And it can be both. And this is one of those films you can watch over and over and over and you will see something new every time. Or not. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by listeners Listeners. like you. (laughs) Thank you so much again to our patrons. And if you would like to support this podcast and our coffee habit by donating $1 a month, remember you get at least two episodes a month. So $1 a month is a small price to pay for all the joy. It's $12 a year. It is. nothing. It's very little. Anyways, if you would like to do that, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. You can find all of our stuff on Facebook and and Twitter and on our website. There's Spotify and iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play and all sorts of wonderful ways to listen. We're in all the places. All the places. If you can think of a place that we're not, please let us know and we will put ourselves there. That sounds weird. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for listening and we will be back in two weeks with another exciting discussion. All right. Thank you very much for listening.